Hello and welcome to the March edition of the Classic Rock Podcast. And this month we dispense with conformity. The usual template for the show is on hiatus for a month. And the reason why, well, we've got a three-part special coming up in which we're in conversation with one of rock music's most enduring characters and all-round great fellow, Mr. Randy Backman, whose biopic is released on Netflix and iTunes shortly. And today... Part one covers the early years from those violin lessons as a child right up to the very last days of the Guess Who. I just, I hear Randy. When I see him, I hear him. And I feel him. Think of all the hits that Randy Bachman has written. I would watch him play and I'm like, I want to, I want to do that. He would literally take apart notes and put other notes in that would never belong in rock and roll. He was an unusual guy at an unusual time in an unusual place. When you find something that early in life that becomes a very early passion, you lose your inhibitions. His strength is his weakness. And whoever was in his way better move because he was going. I remember Randy coming in and he's saying, it's happening. And you start you start thinking it's going to go on forever. And it isn't going to go on forever. A professional musician who's been professional for a long time, it's rare. Often it's said the, the worst in your life brings out the best in your guitar playing. But I think you can also be very, very happy and very content and still play interesting, great, amazing things. The world changes, your music kind of changes, but for some of us, it just keeps on getting better. But there's this little light glimmering, and somehow that balances the 20 hours of crap you go through. You're in your dreamland. Would you let it ride? Yeah, Would you let it ride? Now, after watching the film, I think the best way I can sum it up is to say that this is the story of one man's dedication to his craft, who throughout his life uh, never strayed away from making life-changing decisions in the uh, pursuit of creative perfection and personal happiness. Now, would that be a fair assessment? Well... (laughs) I didn't start out that way. That's the kind of the way I was. I think it's, you might have seen it there. I started playing music when I was about four or five, and it was classical violin. And when you do that, your mother makes you practice an hour or maybe half an hour in the morning before school and after school before you could go out to play. So that becomes part of growing up. You get up in the morning and practice your craft, your instrument, and then after school, before I could go out and play with the kids, I had to come home and practice for an hour. And when I switched, by the time I switched to guitar at 14 or 15, I'd almost had hit my tipping point as far as discipline and learning. And all you play in a violin is lead line. So all my guitar solos, it's like I'm playing a, a violin. Now, it all began for you, didn't it? On a night, uh, you were around at a friend's house who had a TV, which was something that not everybody had, of course, back in those days. And you see... Uh, for the very first time on a television screen, Elvis Presley. And the next day, that was it. You're off down to Eaton's record store. And then I went into Eaton's, and I still have this. I just unpacked, because I just moved to Victoria, B.C. I, I unpacked, and it was my old, my mum and dad's old Viking 
radio player, which was a big wooden thing with doors. He opened it up and it had a radio in it and a turntable. And in it was my old records. And the first one was a 78 on RCA of Elvis. And it was Hound Dog back with Don't Be Cruel. And I, that's what I learned to play to. And I still got that record. It's a 78, it's cracked, but if you pinch the crack together, you only hear a little chick, 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 chick every time it goes around, but the, the music was still there. It was amazing to hear it. Now that sort of got you hooked, but then you got involved with Lenny Bro, who was something of a local legend playing the area in and around Winnipeg. Now, he had quite a big influence, didn't he, on you and your career? Yes, he had moved, his family had moved from Maine in the States, uh, to Winnipeg for some reason. His mother and father were in a band. They dressed up like Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, if you ever saw those old movies, with all the shirts and the fringes and the hats and the fancy cowboy boots. And they did, you know, Ray Price and Webb Pierce and a little bit of Carl Perkins and Elvis. And their son, Lenny, uh, their real life family name was Bro. They were called Hal Lone Pine and Betty Cody. Uh, that was like their cowboy names. And he was called Hal Lone Pine Jr. And I would listen to the radio. This was on live on the radio in Winnipeg. And I'd listen to this and Neil Young and Burton Cummings. We were all like growing up there, early teenagers listening to this radio show. It was on at noon every Saturday. And they said uh, they would be playing, like I said, Webb Pierce and, and Johnny Cash and stuff like that, Ray Price. And, and they would say, now we're going to take a break and let Junior play. And out of my little radio would come this amazing guitar music. And I thought it was two or three guys. And they would go to a different car lot around Winnipeg every Saturday. So when it was in my end of town, I got on you know, my bicycle and rode there. I was like 15. And I'm sitting there watching them play. And it's live on the radio. So they've got like a trailer there and a few microphones. And I'm watching them all play. And then they say the same thing. Now we're going to take a break and let Junior play. And there's this one little guy on stage. And he's 16. He's a year older than me. He's got a big orange Gretsch like Eddie Cochran or Dwayne Eddy or Chad Atkins had, and he starts to play Caravan. And I'm looking around, like, who's playing the bass and who's playing? Because I'm used to just playing one lead line on a violin and maybe on a guitar. And I look, and he's playing using all his fingers. And I see one's going boom, 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 playing the bottom like a bass line. And the other two are playing the chords, and his third finger is playing the lead, the lead on top. And I, I stood there, and I'm the only one watching him. Everyone else is having coffee and donuts and talking about buying cards <laughs> i'm in front of this little stage that's maybe four feet high they just plunk it down on the asphalt of the of the parking lot of the cars they're selling and i'm the only one in front of him and it's live on the radio so i wait till he's done and they go to commercial and i go and i say what's your name and he says my name's lenny and um i say where do you live he says we don't live anywhere we live in a trailer we just came up from maine but we're looking for a house and i said what is that you're playing and he said it's called chet atkins style or finger style and I thought it was one word, like flamenco. <laughs> so I said, how do I learn this? And he said, just go to Eaton's record store and ask for a Chet Atkins record. So I go down there the next Saturday and I say, I need a Chet Atkins record. Like, it's like one word. And she says, the lady says, do you mean Chet Atkins? And I say, no, I don't think so. It's Chet Atkins. It's like one big word, like C-H-E-D-A-K-I-N-S. And she says, you might mean Chet Atkins. Listen to this. And she played it. She played the same song, Caravan. I said, that's it. She said, oh, it's Chet Atkins. Then I saw Lenny two weeks later, and he said, I've got, a, we've now moved into a house. And I said to him something very important. I said to him, I didn't use the word want. I said, I need to learn to play that way. I need. 
not I want, I need. And he said, well, come on over to my house. I said, where do you go to school? He said, I don't go to school. My parents <laughs> took me out of school when I was 10. He had been playing guitar since he was six. And they took him, he was so good, they took him out of school when he was 10. And they traveled around the world. It's like a gospel show that, you know, puts up a tent like Katy Perry. Grew up, her dad, mom and dad were gospel. And she never went to school. She was homeschooled. And they'd pitch a tent. And people would come and they'd get money. So this is the way it was with Lenny. And he said, I live, here's my address on my house. And I said, wow, that's right across the street from, I have two girlfriends who were twins. They were German and my parents were German. We went to the same German, the um, Lutheran church. And I said, so I go to their house for lunch every day. And he said, well, go have lunch and then come to my house. So my mother had a deal because I lived several miles from the school and from, Win from in Winnipeg, literally for six months a year, it's minus 30, minus 40 in the winter. So instead of walking home for an hour in the cold, eating lunch and walking back to school, I'd go to this house where my two girlfriends lived and have lunch. They'd go back to school. I'd go across the street to Lenny Bro's house, and he would be putting on Chad Atkins records, Merle Travis, uh, Tal Farlow, Barney Kessel, Elvis Presley, Gene Vincent, Chuck Berry, and just, and I saw what he did, and I learned to play from watching him, and it was amazing. It was the best two years of my life. I flunked grade 10 and grade 11, but for, you, for me, that was my kindergarten years on guitar, and I haven't learned anything si since that. That's been my whole... There's a book out called Everything I Ever Wanted to Learn. I learned in kindergarten. It's by some famous guy. Yeah, That's yeah. the way it was with yeah, me yeah. with guitar. I learned everything in those two years. Now, I did see a story somewhere that he left his parents' country and Western band after his father one day slapped him around the face for trying to incorporate jazz into his playing. That's right. I was there when his dad did that, and I was uh, appalled that he would do that because his dad came in and said, where were you last night? You were supposed to be doing a gig. And he said, I was downtown with the cats. And his dad goes, what, what cats? And he said, the jazz cats, man, the big cats in Winnipeg who play jazz, and I'm playing jazz. I'm leaving the family dad band, and his dad slapped him right across the face. He started crying. I was, like, shocked that his dad would do this. I mean, this is like corporal punishment right in front of me. And his dad was used to me, and so was his mother. I'd been going every afternoon to their house for two years. When my report card came out from school, at the end of the year, my mother said, something's wrong. It says you've gone to class 135 days in the morning and you've missed 135 afternoons. And I said, I have a confession to make. I've been going over <laughs> to Lenny's house. Now you also had a lesson from the legendary Les Paul. Now you tried to get in to see him one day, but live gigs then, uh, were somewhat different to they are these days. This was a dinner club which was serving alcohol, so you couldn't get in because you were a minor. But as you found out a few years later, a very famous friend of yours did. Right. It was a dinner club called the Rancho Don Carlos. It was the other side of Winnipeg. I heard he was playing there at the time. Les Paul Mary Ford had three songs in the top 20 or, or in Winnipeg. It was How High the Moon, Via Candios, and Lover. And I also had his album. And uh, so I, 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 I never tell my parents this. I mean, I just get on a bus after school with a six cent bus ticket and go to the other side of Winnipeg because it literally was, a, you know, four or five miles away. And I, it's a triple bus ride like with transfers in between. And I get to the Rancho Don Carlos and it's maybe 4.30 or 5 in the afternoon. And I go there and the first person there and the guy says, what are you doing? He's just opening the door. And I said, I'm here to see Les Paul. And he said, well, where's your adult? 
parents and said, well, they're at home. And he said, you can't get in. It's a supper club. You've got to have someone over 21 because we serve liquor with, with dinner. And you can't come in. And so I'm, I'm really, you know, disheartened and down. And I go sit at the bus stop, which is right out front of the club. And a black Cadillac pulls up. And the window rolls down. And it's Les Paul. And he says, hi, kid. Are you here to see me? And I go, yeah, I'm here to see you. And he, I said, but I can't see you because I can't get in. And he said, <laughs> I said, I can't get in. He said, why not? I said, it's, it's, they serve alcohol and I can't get in. He said, I'll get you in. Carry in my guitar. So I carry in his guitar and he wheels in about four or five gigantic single uh, track Ampex tape recorders. And he stacks them all up and he runs them with a, with a, a remote control that's attached to his guitar with a giant cable, maybe two inches in, in thickness, like a gigantic rope. And that's called the Les Pulverizer. So his whole show was he would walk out to the audience, table to table, almost like a Mexican mariachi band. They would go to each table and play for the couples there, him and Mary Ford. And the son stayed on stage. He had his son, Gene, with him. We just played a, kind of a shuffle on drums. So Les Paul would go to a table and goes, here's how we do it. And he'd go, dun, 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 and he'd play guitar, then he'd play it back. Then he would speed it up, so it's chipmunk, and he'd play bass on his guitar, boom, boom, boom. So when he slowed it down to normal speed, the guitar he played would be down an octave, and it would be like a bass. And then, so he's showing the audience how he did all his recording. And I'm sitting there watching the tape recorders start and stop and switch and go into record. But I'm watching the back of Les Paul, because I'm in the kitchen, because I can't go in the supper club. I'm in the kitchen where I'm allowed, and there's big swinging doors with big round glass windows so the neighbors the uh, so the waiters won't knock over each other's trays when the swinging doors are swinging back and forth they're going through with drinks and dinner plates on the tables so this and i'm watching the back of les paul and the back of mary ford as they're going to the tables and when the show's all over he comes backstage he's wiping his brow with a napkin and he says here kid hold this and he hands me his guitar which is a les paul guitar which is heavy enough as it is but it has a gooseneck coming out of the top of the guitar with a microphone on it so he can like bend the gooseneck around because they were walking around to the tables and talking to people through the gooseneck. And it has the pulverizer on it, which is a big remote control with the cable. So his guitar had to weigh like over 50 pounds. And he hands it to me and I almost drop it on the floor. But he wipes his brow, he puts it on, he goes back out. And when he's all done, he says, anything else I could do for you, kid? I could please <laughs> sign my album and show me the riff in How High the Moon. It's kind of a chromatic hammer-on pull-off riff. And he shows it to me, and then that's that. I go home. Years later, I'm year, many years later, decades later, I'm playing with Van Halen. I'm opening for Eddie and Sammy Hager has just joined Van Halen, and we get to New York. We're playing Nassau Coliseum in Long Island, and Les Paul shows up, and he's chatting with Eddie, and he comes over to me and he goes, "Do I know you?" And I, I say, "Well, I saw you when I was 15 at the Rancho Don Carlos." And he goes, "Yeah, I remember you. Do you remember the the Rip Kid? He remembered me. He said, do you still remember the Rip?" It's and I brilliant. Said, yeah. and he said, come on, come on down to my club tomorrow, and the Iridium Club. So I went to the Iridium Club, and, and all guitar players are there from Dallas and L.A., and they've come from all over the world to play with Les Paul. He had like an open jam session, and they all want to play How High the Moon, and they all want to show him how good they can play. And he keeps talking about a friend of his in the audience, and I'm wondering, who is it? And it ends up being me. He calls me on stage, <laughs> and he says, I met this man when he was a young man. He was 15. I got him into the club. I taught him this riff, and now we're going to play How High the Moon and see if he still remembers the riff. And he plays it, and I, I do the riff. And then he says, now let's do one of yours. And I go, what? 
<laughs> don't you have a song on the radio? I'm like, why? I've got a real easy song, Taking Care of Business, at three chords. So he says, do it. So I do it, and he plays with me. And I have a video of this that we had just bought a, a video camera. Uh, video was brand new at the time, so we had bought a, a camera with um, you know digital tape in it. And I have a tape of this, and it's a highlight of my life. So it was amazing. And here's what else is amazing. I go to Neil Young's 70th birthday party a couple of years ago at the Troubadour in L.A. where Neil Young started out. And I'm telling the story of someone, and Neil comes up to me, and he says, uh, you know that Les Paul story you tell? And I go, yeah. And you were sitting behind watching Les Paul's ass while he was playing to the audience? I go, yeah. And he says, well, I was at the front table. My mother took me, and I sat in front of Les Paul. Nah, 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 nah. And I saw him playing. <laughs> and I go, well, that was you at the front table? He said, yeah, my mother got a table. So we, there, we, there we were. And you saw Les Paul's behind, and I saw, his, I saw him playing the riff. Uh, so it was kind of a nice end to the, the story. Now, all of this happened before you got to the Guess Who, the band that evolved from various entities, including the Silvertones, Chad Allen and the Reflections, uh, Chad Allen and the Expressions, before finally you became the Guess Who, because simply you couldn't think of a name. Well, you probably heard of the original Johnny Kidd and the Pirates shake. Absolutely. Absolutely. We got that record and it was number one in England, I think in 61 or 62. And we thought, wow, this has been a number one in England. No one in Canada has heard this song because we got it from Chad Allen's cousin. Uh, we'll learn this song. We start to play the dances and they went nuts over it. The bass line just gets everybody up dancing. And um, so we went into a television studio, which was the only recording facility in Winnipeg at the time. They had one microphone in the middle of the room. And we recorded that song with one microphone and sent it into the record label. And they said, this sounds like the British invasion. We want to put this out. That sounds like a hit. It already was a hit in England, so we got a, you know, a proven test on this song. And you, but you can't be called The Reflections, because there's a band called The Reflections has a hit called Just Like Romeo and Juliet. So we came up with the name Expressions, and basically we're named after Cliff Richard and the Shadows. That's why we were called The Reflections. And our whole repertoire was Cliff and the Shadows, uh, the singles, instrumentals, and vocals. And then we happened to get this Johnny Kidd thing, which is very similar. And we had Shane Fenton and the Fentones and and Mike Berry nailed us. We did all the British stuff in Winnipeg. And that's why, every, that's why we were different than every other band. And uh, you actually heard these singers and bands because of a European relative who, in lieu of Christmas presents, because money was a little bit tight at the time, used to send you taped copies of all of the British hits of all the British bands of the time. Exactly. Chad Allen had a cousin in, 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 somewhere in England, and, she, and it was a, a girl, and she would get all of her friends' singles together and put them on a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder back-to-back. -back. We wouldn't even know what they were called. We just heard these great songs that were all, whatever, top 40 or top 20 in England, and, and then again then on pirate radio that was not available in Canada. And uh, we would listen to this and learn it, and it made us different from every other band. Plus, we could, I would always buy The Shadows, they had EPs and were like with four songs on. And then when I bought Out of the Shadows, that was life changing. I got a sweater to look like, uh, you know, Hank or Jet, uh, Jet Harris or whatever. And we basically were copying the shadows all the time. But it made us very different. Um, so we had to name the reflections to be like the shadows. And we couldn't use that. We came up with the same kind of syllables. We were the expressions. And we got a notice we couldn't use that name. It was a band on Motown. And the label said, we want to put this out. Come up with a name. So we went to our library, this is before there's internet, and got every book on birds and butterflies, and every name had been taken by doo-wop bands. 
the Orioles, the Ravens, <laughs> the, the Vice, the Viceroys, the Crows. The, the, every name had been taken. So we called. We uh, phoned the record label and said we don't have a name, and they said we're putting it out on a white label, shaking all over, and underneath it we're putting Guess Who. And that went to number one in Canada. Scepter Records picked it up. It went top twenty in the states, and we were called Guess Who. And you were out on tour as well very quickly afterwards with, amongst others, the Kingsmen. Yeah, Kingsmen were on a record label called Wand, which was the sister records of Scepter Records. And we were put on Scepter and, uh, Records, uh, along with Dionne Warwick and Chuck Jackson and Maxine Brown. And there was the Kingsmen. The songwriters at Scepter were Bacharach and David because they were there pitching songs to Dionne Warwick. And Ashford and Simpson were there pitching songs. On our second album we cut at Scepter called Hey Ho What You Do To Me, the song called Hey Ho What You Do To Me was written by Ashford and Simpson and they're actually singing background harmony on it. And they would actually play hooky from school every Friday. They were like 14 or 15 or 16 and come down to Scepter and play the records, the songs they had written. And so I've known these people a long, long, and they turned into songwriting legends, right? Every hit that Bacharach and David wrote, Dion Warwick sang it was a hit. And then Ashford and Simpson started to get their hits and then and they're writing, you know, Ain't No Mountain High Enough and Solid as a Rock and all this stuff. So I was in great company, and it, it, it was a template for me to be a really good songwriter. Because when you're copying Backrack and David, and then the other guys of the day, which are Lennon and McCartney and Jagger and Richard and Brian Wilson and Mike Love, you have great templates to copy. And Burton Cummings and I got together every Saturday, and I'd say, let's write a Burt Backrack song. But let's leave out the 2-4 bar, because he always put in 2-4 bars. And um, that's kind of how these eyes came about. And then we started this great songwriting binge that we had, which was incredible. Uh, that wasn't enough excitement for you. You get your first trip to England all booked up. It's on the promise of turning you into huge stars over in the UK, where, of course, it was all happening. Uh, sadly, though, the promises were empty, as you were to find out when you got there, and you came back 40000 or more in debt. You did say, though, that it was a disaster that you loved, plus the sun shone every day. Yes, well, we, we, we were on King Records, which was owned by Philip Solomon, who was who, who who I would say would be like Don Arden? You know what? You know what? Yeah, I'm yeah, just Don Arden. He would take advantage of everybody. And um, when we got there, and he offered us this deal, we went into his office, and it was like four hundred dollars a week, and which in pounds then was like two hundred pounds a week. And he said, "And so you do this, and I'll send you all over England." And our song was in the top twenty in England. It was called His Girl, and uh, he had uh, gotten somebody there. To, uh, and we recorded it in Minneapolis in three-track, and he wanted to do a sweetening, so he, which is adding string and, and at the time, you know, flugelhorn or something. And so we were top 20. And with, to show up in the Billboard charts under England to see our name there was the biggest thrill in the, in the world for us. And um, he offered us this money, and I said, so how about when we get a gig? And he said, you get 400 a week. And I said, is that for me, or each of us? He said, no, it's for the band. I said, what, we're getting $400 a week for the band or 200 pounds a week? Yes. I said, well, how about when we get gigs and we do a tour? And he would say, what don't you understand about 400 a week? And I said, is that all we get? And he said, yes, it's a five-year contract, but you'll be as big as the Beatles or the Hollies or whatever. And he said, take it or leave it. We looked at each other. We didn't even discuss it. We walked out of his office. The next guy going in, his name was Jerry Dorsey. 
So we're outside with no deal. We've walked out on the on the on this proposal tour and recording session, and out comes Jerry Dorsey, and we say, "Did you take the deal?" And he said, "Yes." And they're changing my name to Engelbert Humperdinck. Yeah. And so we said, "What? What is what is this ding thing?" He said, "Oh, he's some <laughs> Austrian composer, and we're these, they're changing my name." So they did that. We had nothing to do then. We were, but it was great. We had no obligations. Uh, we got. We were staying at the Regent Palace there in Piccadilly, the hotel, and I said to the whole band, "We're stuck here. We don't have any money or any income. How much money have we got? How much have I got? How much you got?" Because I had brought my own money because I wanted to buy Cliff and the Shadow Records or whatever was going on at the time. Hendrix was brand new. Cream was brand new. We bought the singles of Cat Squirrel and you know that that was Cream's first single and I Feel Free and all that kind of stuff. And it was really amazing. And Hendrix, Hey Joe, you know, with Stone Free on the flip side. This is before they even did albums. So we're having, we're in our glory there. So we pool all our money. We all check out of our rooms and we check into one room at the Regent Palace. They have two little tiny beds there. So we push them together and we sleep sideways on the beds with our feet on a chair. So from our behind up, we're on the bed and we're sleeping four guys beside each other. And because we were of different schedules, Gary Peterson and I were like um, married guys, and um, we would be there all night sleeping, and the other guys would be out in Soho all night partying. <laughs> and when they got home, they we would you know we would get up and go out to London in the daytime, and then they would sleep. And we made friends with all the maids there because when you have uh, when you have a room in England, uh, especially in those days, it, you had free breakfast. And these maids, who are basically all from Spain. They would bring breakfast to your room in the morning, a giant tray, and you know what an English breakfast is, it's huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beans, <laughs> beans and eggs and sweet tomatoes and, <laughs> and bacon and sausage and just tons of food. And then they would collect it all about 11 o'clock in the, in the afternoon. So we would come back and the maids would bring us all the dry toast and bacon. So we lived on these bacon sandwiches because that was the only thing that was good cold was the, the cold bacon and the toast. <laughs> we lived on bacon sandwiches for two weeks. But every single day was fantastic. We went to the Marquis Club and saw The Who in the afternoon. They were recording for German television. We had an argument over the name. They were The Who and we were The Guess Who and they should stop using our name. And it was hilarious. <laughs> it was really fun. And we would go to the bag of nails on all these clubs. So for us, it was a disaster. But it turned into the, uh, the most wonderful vacation of all time for us because, no, because no. of these free breakfasts. I mean, we literally ate bacon sandwiches two or three times a day for like two solid weeks. And then we got home to Winnipeg. We were actually in the hole, maybe $40,000. We had all our gear we had shipped to England at a dollar a pound and we never used it because we didn't realize the voltage was different. We couldn't even use our equipment from Canada in England. And um, we were basically gonna break up. We did, we, it allowed us to break up with our manager who had sent us there with no contracts and everything. And then when we broke up with him and walked out of the room, the guys in the band said, what do we do now? And I said, well, I'm starting another band. Do you want to be in it? And they said, you mean the same band? I said, yeah, basically, all I want to do is get rid of our management. So we're the same guys, but maybe we'll get some gigs back. And I got a call from a guy named Larry Brown, and he said, I'm producing a television show. It's going to be like Top of the Pops. And I said, I know what that is. And he said, but we want you to play live. You'll pre-record it, but then you'll go and fake it, and you're going to sing live on TV, but we want to make sure the band tracks sound good. Can you guys read music? And I told a lie, and I said yes. So he said, okay, I'm going to have charts for you. Come in on Monday. I'm going to have four or five charts. 
And I said, who's doing the charts? And he said, Bob McMullen. I knew this guy, Bob McMullen. So I called Bob McMullen on Saturday morning. I said, have you done the charts yet for the television show? And he said, oh, I've got four songs done. I've got two more to do. I said, which ones have you done? And he didn't know he wasn't supposed to tell me. So I said, I've got Last Train to Clarksville. I've got, you know, the letter by the box tops. I've got all those charts written out. And I go, great, thanks. And what are the other two? And he told me the other two. So I go out and I buy all six records. I get the band together. We rehearse Saturday afternoon and all day Sunday. We go on Monday. They put the charts in front of us. Not only do we play the charts, we play it at the right tempo, at the right key. And we sound like the records because we're used to copying records. We're a jukebox band. So Larry Brown comes up to me and he goes, that is just amazing. You're not reading the damn charts, are you? And I say, no. And he said, it doesn't matter. If you can sound like the records, that's all I want. We've got this television show, which lasted two years. And then we were supposed to copy the hit parade, which is what we did. And then we were to start, then as it got boring, because the hit parade then didn't change as fast as it changes now. Now it changes every week. Then when a song got on the charts, it would start at 100 and go up to 49 and up to 29 and up to top. And so we're playing the same music basically over and over. So Larry said, why don't you guys start writing some of your own songs? I know you write your own songs. Why don't you write your own? And you've got to make them as good to fit in between the Supremes and the Beatles. Hey, Jude, you, your songs have got to be, and the Stones, you've got to be, your songs have to be as good to fit in there so nobody knows their original songs. And we'll announce them as your original songs, but if they don't make it, they're not going to make it. I'm not going to put them in the show. So Cummings and I started to really sit down and write every Saturday morning songs like, you know, Jagger and Richards and Lennon and McCartney and Brian Wilson and, and Mike Love and, and all the Motown guys. And out of it came our songbook that we wrote. So it was an amazing experience. And to do that every week, 38 weeks a year for two years in a row, I would liken it to the Beatles getting up every day and going to Abbey Road Studios and recording and recording and recording. And what didn't work, they took an old song from two weeks ago and they did it in a different tempo and a different key. And they experimented and experimented. And for us, it was such incredible studio training that when we finally got a call to record an album where Phil Ramone was going to use us in his A&R studios in New York, and we had already written These Eyes and a couple other songs, we, we, I mean, we were like seasoned studio musicians already because I had been playing violin since five. Burton Cummings had been playing classical piano since six. Our drummer, Gary Peterson, had been playing drums since he was three. He was a child protege drummer. So when we're all in our middle and late teens, we've been musicians for like 10 or 12 or 15 years. We've been studio musicians now every single day churning out the stuff on CBC television. So when we were ready to be a hit band, and we were. All of the great songs that had memorable riffs usually had a story to go with them. Bizarre circumstance around the composition, maybe. The likes of Smoke on the Water remembering the casino come to mind. But yours is some tale as well on the song which elevated you to the status of rock and pop legends. I'm talking about American Woman, a story of avoiding the draft for Vietnam and that life-changing guitar string break. What's well, absolutely true. Um, we were crossing the border and we have, there's this ritual. Gas was cheaper in the States, petrol as you would call it. So we would, we would drive with our tank almost empty over the border and gas was way cheaper. So we'd always fill up at the same gas station. And the, the, the old guy pumping in the gas would say, well, Sonny, where are you going this time? 
And I'd say, well, we're going to Boston. We're playing a pop festival with Richie Havens and Joan Baez and Ultimate Spinach and all these other bands. And then, and then where are you going? Well, we're coming home. You mean you're driving from Winnipeg to Boston for one gig? And we'd go, yeah. And he'd say, how much are you getting? I'd say, $400. And he'd go, that'll barely pay your gas. And I'd say, well, we don't care. And then the next trip down, where are you going? Oh, we're driving to San Francisco. You go, what? You're driving from Winnipeg to San Francisco for $400? Yeah, we're playing with Country Joe and the Fish and Janis Joplin. And, and then you're coming home. Yeah, so this time he says, where are you going? And I said, we're going to Tyler, Texas. And it's February, and it's a Valentine's Day dance. He says, you're driving to Tyler, Texas? That's on the Gulf of Mexico. I said, yeah, but it's right below Winnipeg. I mean, this is my thinking. And I said, but before we go down to Tyler, the guy at the border who I could hardly understand, he had a very thick southern accent, kept telling me to go into some sort of service building. And I couldn't understand him. His accent was so thick. And the guy said, did he say selective service? And I said, yeah, that's it. A white building with an American flag. And he said, do you know what that building is? Do you know what selective service is? And I said, I have no idea. He said, it's the draft board. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, when you, cross the, when you cross the border, what did you have? I said, we have green cards, resident alien cards. And he said, do you know what that means? It means you could work in the States, which you're doing. It means you could live in the States, but also you have to pay taxes in the States. And it also means that you're an American temporary citizen, resident alien, and they can draft you. And they will. And they took my son a year ago when he turned 18. He was killed in the jungles of Vietnam. My nephew turned 18 two days ago. The MPs came with the white helmets, took him out of school. He's now in Fort Bragg. We're probably going to lose my nephew too. These guys are going to draft you. You're 18, you're 20, you're 21 years of age. You're healthy Canadians. You've got American papers. Believe me, you will not get to Tyler, Texas. They now know you've crossed the border. They, they've got your license plate. Do yourselves a favor. Don't try to go back the same way because they'll arrest you. Don't go in that selective service and register because then they'll know. And just turn left here. Drive a couple hundred miles. Turn left again. Go up through Duluth, Minnesota, back to Canada, and then drive in Canada back home to Winnipeg and turn in your green cards. And don't come back to the U.S. until the Vietnam War is over. We were scared to death. We got into Ontario. had no money. I phoned a booking agency which was called The Agency. And I phoned the agency and I say, this is Randy Bachman from the Guess Who. Do you have any gigs in Toronto for us? And he goes, we got a lot of gigs. When do you need them? I said, tonight. It's Saturday morning. We need a gig tonight. We need money to get home. And he says, I, we, I have a gig. In a, Valentine's Day, everybody's booked solid. But we just had a phone call from a band. Their lead singer has laryngitis. They can't do the gig. Do you want to go to Kitchener-Waterloo, which is maybe, I don't know, 100 miles out of Toronto. And it's a curling rink. And it's 400 bucks. And I said, we'll take it. So we go and play this curling rink, which, is, you know, curling is like ice with targets. Oh, yes, so we know what it is over here. <laughs> a lot of people in the States didn't know that. So we go to this curling rink, and they, they put plywood on the ice, and we're playing a dance. And we love it because in the States, we were playing shows where we only played Shaken All Over and a few of our songs, and we're with four or five other bands. Now we're playing a three-hour dance. We're playing all our Beatles and all our Hollies and all of our Shadows and all of our Beach Boy songs and sticking in our own original stuff. I had no spare amp, no spare guitar, no tuner, no roadie. So when I broke a string, and this is on a 59 Les Paul, my American woman Les Paul, Burton Cummings says, we're going to take a break while Randy changes the string. So I'm changing a string on a Les Paul with a big spin. If you know anything about guitars, it's rocket science. There's no table. I've got the guitar in my lap. I don't have a tuner. I'm kneeling in front of Burton Cummings' piano, an electric piano on stage. 
And so I put the string on the guitar, which takes me a couple of minutes, and the whole audience is talking, and a DJ's playing records on a little tiny record player. And as I tune up my guitar, it's going dun 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 dun. I start dun dun da 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 dun. I'm just getting it in tune. And when I play that riff, the whole audience stops talking, and their head snaps to me on stage. And I'm on my knees in the dark, tuning to Burton's piano. And I go, wow, this is a moment. I can't forget this riff. So I stand up and I start playing the riff over and over again. And then I, I motion with my head to the drummer. He comes, he starts playing. I motion to the bass player. He comes on, he starts playing. And Burton comes running on stage going, this sounds great. What is it? And I say, I don't know. I'm making it up, play a solo. So he did a harmonica solo. Then he did a flute solo. Then he did a piano solo. And I yelled out to him, sing anything. Because when you're making up a riff, if you make lyrics fit that riff no matter what they are like paul mccartney singing scrambled eggs which turned into yesterday i say sing anything so whatever he sings i'm going to help remember this riff because it's so simple i know i'm going to forget it an hour later and and i also know from songwriting when you have an idea or a great dream write it down when you wake up or you say to somebody I had a great dream last night you'll go what was it and you say uh, i forget so burton cummings is going to sing anything and the first words out of his mouth are American woman, stay away from me. He sings it four times. American woman, stay away from me. American woman, stay away from me. American woman, stay away from me. And he's giving me different accents and different words. And we're going, great. Then I solo. He says those four lines again. The crowd goes berserk. They realize this energy on stage. It's like going to a great jazz concert. And guys are jamming. And they're going, they're playing riffs and scales they've never played before. And the audience is on this wonderful trip through outer space and through your mind and the journey through your heart and emotions. And the audience feels this on stage. So the next night comes, and we try to play the song, and we can't. So everybody stops playing. I play around with my guitar. I tune it up again. I play the same riff, and I, luckily I get the same riff, or maybe close to the same riff. I, we don't know. And Burton sings it again. Burton says, can I add in a few lines like, I don't need your ghetto scenes. I don't need your war machines. And I go, yeah, yeah, great. Add in those lines. And we go to record a couple of weeks later. We play for Jack Richardson, our producer, who loves it. And the same thing happened. We go in the studio. We count one, two, three, four, and we forget it. So Jack gets everybody to leave the studio or they're sitting in the sidelines, and I go in alone in the dark, recreate the thing where I'm on my knees and turning to Burton's piano, and I start the riff again. And I don't know if it's the same riff, but it is, a, it is the riff that's American Woman now. And then the band comes in and we do it. Then it's recorded. Then Jack Richardson says, okay, let's slow it down or let's speed it up. And we got to do a break in the middle because it's very, very boring. It's the same riff over and over. So after my solo, I, we do the da 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 ooh, and that's like the little break in the middle. And we record the song, and much to our amazement, it goes to number one in all three trades. Then there was Cashbox, uh, Record World, and, um, and Billboard. And we're number one in all three trades, single and album. And the other, I had written a song called No Sugar Tonight, which is the flip side of American Woman, and it's listed at a double A side at number one. And the only double A sides then were like the Beach Boys. And we also had another uh, double A side with Laughing and She's Come Undone. So here we are, like, we're, we're, we always wanted to be British, so, and we're Canadian, we're closer than American. So here we are, as British as the Beatles or the Stones, having double A sides at number one in Billboard. And it was an absolute, gigantic, wonderful thrill of a lifetime. Let's not forget also that this song was, in effect, a protest song against the war, which most U.S. radio stations didn't actually realise at the time. Now, the lyrics as well also included lines like, 
I don't need your ghetto scenes. Now, you said as well sometime afterward that you'd never seen a ghetto uh, until you actually crossed the border. Right. We, we grew up in the poor part of Winnipeg. My parents were like German-Ukrainian. Uh, everybody there was either Russian, I mean, uh, Russian-Ukrainian, and they were either Catholic or Jewish. Even families would be split. Some cousins would be Jewish, because they all came from the same town, and some would be real heavy Catholics. And so like, that was a very important thing for us. And we grew up poor, but we didn't know that. But when we went down to the States, to like Alabama and Louisiana, and this is on the Kingsman Louis Louis tour, and saw these poor people picking cotton for a dollar a bale. Now, if you see how big a bale of cotton is, it's the size of a refrigerator. To pick a bale of cotton that big and get paid a dollar takes you all day. And living in, in houses or shacks made out of highway signs that would blow down because they had a lot of tornadoes and hurricanes down there. So a big sign blows down and it says, you know, smoke black cat cigarettes or, or drink Dr. Pepper, uh, you know, Coca-Cola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was the roof of their houses with these signs. And they're like, the houses are on stilts because it always floods there. The levees down there in Louisiana and, and, and Alabama and stuff. We saw what poor was. So that was the ghetto scenes. We, and then in the city, the ghetto scenes are worse because there's like a lot of crime and everybody's robbing and stealing and everything. So like you said, and there was an edict out there that radio could not play any anti-war songs. They played Sergeant Barry Sandler, who sang Fighting Men of the Green Beret and all these kind of songs. They wouldn't play Country Joe, one, two, three, what are we fighting for? They wouldn't play Eve of Destruction, Barry um, McGuire's big hit. It was on the radio, then they found out they pulled it off the radio. But we had such a momentum going with the guess who, and being Canadians, they thought we weren't doing a protest song until some DJ finally listens to the lyrics. I mean, they were so hungry for stuff by the guess who, they would just play a song when it came in the door. You know what I mean? They're playing like yeah, rapping, yeah. undone, yeah, yeah. she's come undone, uh, no time. And then they put American Woman on, it's got a great riff, and somewhere they realize it's we don't want your war machines. And by then it's too late, it's number one. And American Woman herself is actually the Statue of Liberty. Basically, yes. It was not the woman on the street who were just like a Canadian or an English woman or a beautiful <laughs> Swe Swedish lady or whatever. It wasn't the, that woman. It was the whole American um, attitude, which I, I believe they have in England as well. I've seen guys there saying, we must go fight for the Queen. Well, you don't know the damn queen. Why is she in? She's not at war. It's your prime minister who's at war. The queen's living comfortably in Buckingham Palace with all her jewels. They have this notion that they're going to defend a person. And so, like, it's the same thing in the States. We're going to fight for the Statue of Liberty. Well, the Statue of Liberty was a gift from France. Why are you going to a jungle and fighting for a, a, a square foot of ground or real estate in a jungle that you're never going to live there? We don't even know where Vietnam is. I mean, nobody knew where it was. And so it did not make any sense, this whole war. America's been at war. Uh, but like I said, the, the government blackballed any of Jane Fonda, Buffy St. Marie, uh, John Lennon. They were against the war. They spoke out against it. They were basically blackballed from uh, getting any really great gigs or great movies or getting any great breaks. And it was just terrible what the American government did. And there it is, Randy Bachman, the early years. Now join us next week on Friday for the BTO years as we travel through the 1970s with Mr. Backman, Mr. Turner and Mr. Overdrive. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. From me, Tim Cable, bye-bye for now.